The stuff of history is all around us. It's in what we eat and wear, where we live and play, and how we work and travel. The Object Project is a podcast about material culture and history, produced by history students of the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and myself, Dr. Jennifer Lazat, Assistant Professor of U.S. History and Material Culture. All episodes are researched and recorded by UNCW students exploring the tangible past. On November 10th, 1898, a statewide white supremacist campaign culminated in the violent overthrow of democratically elected local leaders in the port city of Wilmington, North Carolina. Estimates of the black citizens killed that day range from the dozens to the hundreds, and many more prominent black residents and their white allies were systematically exiled in the days following. In the 1890s, Wilmington was home to a majority black population, and a biracial coalition called the Fusionists took control of local politics at the same time most southern states reverted back to democratic control by way of unfair voting regulations and threats of violence. Wilmington was an outlier. But in 1898, after months of anti-black media campaigns, systematic ballot stuffing, and finally, an orchestrated murderous coup, white insurrectionists regained political control for the Democratic Party and changed Wilmington's racial composition forever. Wilmington's 1897 directory lists 125 black-owned businesses. Just two years after the deaths and forced exile of dozens of prominent black citizens, that number had fallen by 50%. In the century that followed, white Americans learned little about what many call the only successful coup in the nation's history. Portrayed as a race riot, the historical discourse about 1898 perpetuated the Democratic Party's lie about, about black violence and dishonest political control. This podcast series examines the material objects central to the history of 1898 in Wilmington itself in order to deepen understandings of the days leading up to the event, the violence itself, and the still relevant ramifications of November 1898. For this season of The Object Project, University of North Carolina Wilmington undergraduate and master's students will use physical objects as primary sources. We will tell the story of the 1898 Wilmington coup and massacre through a secondhand printing press, the Cape Fear River, a young woman's photographic portrait, a Colt repeating rifle, the Pine Forest Cemetery, a simple red shirt, and more. Please join us. Warning, these episodes contain descriptions and sounds relevant to the violence of our subject. Gunshots play a prominent role in the audio of several episodes. My name is Lena, and I'm an undergraduate history student at UNCW. My name is Dallas, and I am Lena's co-host today. This episode of The Object Project will focus around Alfred Waddell's gavel. Alfred Waddell was a state representative, a loyal, a white supremacist, an amateur historian, an orator, and the mayor of Wilmington from 1898 to 1906. 
Waddell was a man often remarked upon. During his lifetime, he was described as a gentleman of cultural and scholarly achievement, the deliverer of the most remarkable speech ever heard in the memory of a generation, and as a drunkard, gambler, defaulter, and liar. Waddell lived a storied and complex life. This life left him in possession of a stately gavel. This gavel was donated to the North Carolina History Museum, where it resides today. The gavel is made of ivory and silver. Now the ivory has yellowed and the silver tarnished, but around a century ago, it was likely bright white with shining silver accents. So today, I'm going out to the public to ask people about what gavels make them think about. What associations or images does the picture of a gavel evoke? Okay, when I see a gavel, I think about um, like a courtroom and a judge. Power hungry judge, order. A gavel represents judgment and, uh, and authority. These answers all provide key insights into how gavels are used and what they represent. The gavel is a peculiar yet ubiquitous object. Gavels are often used as symbols of justice or of the legal system. In fact, gavels are used more frequently in films, television, and other media than in actual courtrooms. To understand the importance and meaning of gavels, it is important to examine their history. Many aspects of the American justice system are remnants from British rule. However, the gavel is a uniquely American object. Why do Americans use gavels? There is no universally agreed upon answer, but the most likely origin of the gavel's use in American government is Freemasonry. The Freemasons began in England in the 16th century. The Freemasons quickly grew in popularity and established Freemason lodges across Europe. They were based around ancient tradesmen organizations of stonelayers and masons. Gavels are used as a tool in masonry to hammer in keystones. Because of this, gavels were an important symbol for the Freemasons and were used in their meetings. The first American lodges were founded around 1715. The popularity of Freemasonry quickly grew, and by the time of American independence, there were lodges in every state. Many of the key figures in revolutionary America, including George Washington, were members of the Freemasons. Because of the prominence of Freemasons in the American government, gavels were used in many of the formative meetings of America's new government. Gavels have been used to grant authority to leaders and enforce order during meetings in all kinds of settings. Gavels are often used as symbols of justice and power. For example, in England, where gavels have never been used in courtrooms, gavels are often used in pictures in news stories about new laws or cases. In fact, this happens so often that it is addressed on the official website of the United Kingdom's judiciary. The frequently asked question portion of the website informs the reader that British judges do not use gavels in any official capacity. This shows how strong the association between justice and gavels is. Though gavels are not actually used in international legal bodies, they can be found displayed in places like the UN headquarters purely for, them, for their symbolic value. The symbolic role of gavels can be seen in their ceremonial use. 
One prominent example is when Susan B. Anthony was gifted a gavel on the eve of the 1888 meeting of the National Women's Suffrage Association. The gift of the gavel was meant to represent a bestowing of power onto Susan B. Anthony. The power that this gavel represented is not only symbolic, but practical and measurable. Several studies have shown that gavels and other governmental and religious objects make people trust those in possession of these objects more. In this way, gavels are similar to a lab coat or a priest collar. These objects attest to some kind of power or expertise that people are likely to respect. One study suggested that objects like gavels and judges' robes are essential in ensuring that those who disagree with the court's decision still respect the outcome. These legitimacy talismans are especially important to the courts, since they are largely unelected. It is possible that Waddell's gavel gave his mayoral position legitimacy, despite the fact that he was unelected and installed as the direct result of a violent coup he helped orchestrate. The history of this violent coup is essential to understanding Waddell's gavel. To fully understand Waddell's gavel in its proper historical context, we must have some information about Alfred Waddell's role in history. Waddell's first political speeches were in defense of the Unionist cause. However, once it became clear that secessionist ideals were going to succeed in the South, Waddell quickly switched sides. While this flip-flop did not cement him an honorable and reliable reputation, it did secure him a position in the Confederate Army. Waddell's unremarkable military career came to a stop when he became ill in 1864. Waddell was not diagnosed with any specific illness, but he was unable to continue fighting. He was housebound for some time after his military service. After the Civil War, Waddell was a practicing lawyer and later a congressman. Waddell was a congressman from 1871 to 1879. After losing his congressional seat, Waddell returned to Wilmington and spent his time pursuing power and success. Despite being a lawyer, he did not have a law office, nor many clients. He mainly survived off his family's money and his wife's job. Waddell's wife at the time was Ellen Savage. Ellen was Waddell's second wife. Waddell's first wife was Julia Savage, Ellen's sister. Julia died in 1878. Both Julia and Ellen were from an elite North Carolina family. Ellen made money for the family by tutoring the children of other upper-class Wilmingtonians in the art of piano playing. Waddell's political enemies often joked that Waddell's only real accomplishment was marrying well. However, Waddell was incredibly useful to Wilmington's elite during the white supremacy campaign that led up to 18, the 1898 coup. The organizers of this campaign needed men who could speak, men who could write, and men who could ride. Waddell was considered a man who could speak. Waddell was known for his fiery speeches, which could whip any white crowd into a fury. Because of this, he was also able to become a prominent figure in Wilmington during the lead up to the coup. Through adept political showmanship and maneuvering, Waddell was able to create the committee that appointed the mayor. Waddell made sure that he was seen as a leader during the coup and that potential rivals were not included during key moments. After ousting Silas Wright, the elected mayor, and driving him out of Wilmington, Waddell handpicked a committee that appointed Waddell mayor. This violent coup and Waddell's subsequent mayoral term is the primary reason we remember Waddell today 
and why examining his gavel provides such valuable insight into the historical moment and Waddell's character. So now that we know what Waddell's character was made of, what was his gavel made of? Well, Dallas, when looking at Waddell's gavel, the materials are the first element to catch your eye. Waddell's gavel is made largely of ivory with silver accents and hardware. Sounds expensive. Yes. Silver was used for a variety of different purposes throughout history. In fact, silver was one of the seven metals of antiquity. These metals were metals which were discovered during prehistoric times. Among these seven metals, silver was the third rarest, with only mercury and gold defeating it. One of silver's most prominent uses throughout history was coinage. Even in the Bible, Judas is paid with 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. However, in the 19th century, silver was falling out of use in American coinage. Silver was still used, especially in large units of currency. However, the declining use of silver and money was an incredibly heated topic in North Carolina, especially in the 1890s. After the Civil War, in 1873, the federal government stopped the production of silver, coinage, and some even advocated demonetizing silver completely. This act preceded an economic depression, which hit the South especially hard. Because of this, the two events were linked in the mind of many Southerners. Silver as currency was an important piece of many Southerners' political platforms. This adds political undertones to Adele's silver-encrusted gavel. Silver's association with currency added real and perceived value to silver during Waddell's lifetime. So that's silver. What else was the gavel made from? The other material Waddell's gavel was made from is ivory. Ivory is a unique material derived from elephants' teeth and tusks. Ivory has been prized for its strength, smoothness, and adaptability. Picturing ivory brings to, brings to mind images of luxury, cruelty, opulence, and a history of colonialism. These connotations align with Waddell's privileged white background. Understanding the significance of ivory can help us unpack the material and symbolic meaning of Waddell's gavel. Ivory has an indelible connection to colonialism. During the high colonial period, ivory and slaves were the two main exports from Africa. This connection was so strong that some referred to slaves as black ivory. The human cost... Yikes. The human cost of slavery is horrific and self-evident. However, the ivory trade also resulted in significant human suffering. Killing elephants posed a huge risk to the hunting bands that attempted to harvest ivory. Many early hunters used poison-tipped arrows to fell elephants. This method was dangerous to the hunters as even a wounded elephant posed a large danger. After the popularization of elephant guns, the risk subsided greatly, but as the ivory trade escalated, many hunters were driven to kill more elephants with less people and less time, which resulted in greater risks. Bringing ivory to trading hubs also posed significant risk, both in the long, arduous journey and possible thefts. The use of ivory in the gavel means that the object is not likely to be older than the 19th century since ivory was not used in warped objects until the 19th century due to technological limitations. Carving ivory into complex and reproducible shapes was impossible during earlier periods. The ivory trade also increased exponentially during this period. Ivory has been called the plastic of the 19th century to emphasize how important it was as a material for consumer goods. 
Ivory was used for a wide variety of objects, including piano keys, medical models, billiard balls, dice, and false teeth. However, unlike plastic, ivory was only available to a privileged upper class. Towards the end of the 19th century, alternative forms of ivory, often made of nuts, were invented. These alternative forms were often cheaper to create and purchase, or easier to manipulate and process. From a modern perspective, ivory is associated with the cruelty of killing elephants. Elephants' beauty, emotional depth, and intelligence have proven incredibly effective in invoking human sympathy. Because of this, ivory production has ceased, and trade of already created items is incredibly limited. These bans and regulations have often hurt African nations that have large stockpiles of ivory they are unable to sell. In the present day, ivory is now more commonly associated with the color rather than the material. Ivory is not merely white. Ivory suggests age, antiquity, importance, dignity. It is the color of diplomas, decrees, and proclamations. The color carries much the same connotations as the materials did. The ivory trade played a key role in global history. The ivory trade created many of the world's oldest trade routes. Ivory was even called white gold, further emphasizing its value. One reason ivory was valued was because of association with the rail and the exotic. Ivory's importance and value lends more gravitas to Waddell's gavel. What did Waddell use his gavel for? Well, ultimately, it is impossible to determine the exact provenance of Waddell's gavel. However, there are several likely explanations. While the mystery may not be solvable, it is still interesting and worthwhile to examine these possible explanations. One promising explanation for the gavel's origin is that it may have belonged to his great-grandfather, Alfred Moore. Who was Alfred Moore? Well, Alfred Moore was a Supreme Court justice from 1799 to 1803. Since gavels are used by the Supreme Court to this day, this seems like a reasonable explanation for Waddell's possession of his ivory and silver gavel. Alfred Moore was the second and last Supreme Court Justice from North Carolina. He was also a member of a prominent family in Brunswick County and distinguished himself as a Revolutionary War hero. This possibility is especially interesting because it shows the way that power can be passed down through generations. This possibility would represent a literal passing of the gavel from father to son through four generations. This generational power and wealth is influential everywhere, but is a defining element of Wilmington's history. The same families that were influential at the time of Wilmington's founding were still influential at the time of 1898, and often even up to this day. Another defining element of Wilmington's history is the emphasis on the Revolutionary War. Prominent families in Wilmington felt that they were continuing a revolutionary history when they carried out the coup of 1898. In fact, throughout Wilmington's history, violence perpetuated by the elite was justified by the precedent of the violence of the Revolutionary War. This focus on the Revolutionary War meant that Waddell, who had three great-grandfathers with distinguished service in the war, felt he was particularly well-suited to power in Wilmington. Even if the gavel did not belong to Waddell's great-grandfather, it is likely that Waddell received the gavel as a result of the influence his lineage provided him with. This influence took the form of generational wealth and political and social status. Waddell's influence comprised of all the things black and to some extent poor Wilmingtonians 
was systematically denied access to. However, not much is known about the gavels of the Supreme Court, especially during the period that Moore sat on the court. This is because the Supreme Court had significantly less importance before 1803 when the Mulboy v. Madison case was decided, which established the doctrine of judicial review. Judicial review allowed the courts to rule on whether a law was constitutional. This transformed the Supreme Court from a traveling appeals court into the effectively co-equal branch of government we know today. Mulboy v. Madison was decided towards the tail end of Moore's tenure though Moore himself was absent for both the voting and the arguments. While we do not know much about the material culture of the Supreme Court during Moore's tenure, we do know that today the Supreme Court uses wooden gavels to call the court into session and begin hearing cases, which is a different material than Waddell's gavel. The ivory used to make Waddell's gavel would also have been more expensive and rarer during Moore's Supreme Court term than they would be in later years. Because of the material of the gavel, it is likely that the gavel has a different origin. What else could the gavel have been used for? Well, another possible origin for the gavel is Waddell's time as a congressman. Waddell served as a congressman in the United States House of Representatives from 1871 to 1879. Gavels are used frequently in the House of Representatives. However, little record is kept of the gavels as they come and go. Some records indicate that ceremonial gavels are presented to new speakers of the House. However, typically congressional representatives simply use the gavels that are kept at podiums and used by other members of committees and speakers. These gavels are typically wood. However, there are no rules about the materials or record of the gavels during Waddell's tenure, so they could theoretically have been made from any material. We do know what gavel the United States Senate was using during this period. The Senate has used the same gavel in 1879 as it had in 1789. The gavel was even rumored to have been used by John Adams during the Constitutional Convention. This gavel only broke after a late-night committee on atomic energy got a little too heated and Richard Nixon attempted to call the senators to order. His enthusiastic gaveling finally broke the 1789 gavel in 1952. The broken gavel was replaced with an ornately carved gavel made from the same material. They shouldn't have been using an antique gavel like that. Well, Should have had it in a display case or something, <laughs> somewhere safe. They found out the dangers of using it. The gavel used by the Senate during the period that Waddell was politically active was made of the same materials as Waddell's gavel, ivory and silver. However, the gavel only had a head and no handle, meaning that the wielder had to grip the gavel from the top of the head or the thinner midpoint of the gavel's head. The similar material compositions of the Senate gavel and Waddell's gavel suggest that the gavel could have been from his time as a U.S. congressman, his father's time as a politician, or his grandfather's time in various deliberative bodies. It is also possible that Waddell's gavel came from his own ill-begotten mayoral position which he held from 1898 to 1906. He gained this position as a result of the 1898 coup, which usurped the democratically elected fusionist mayor, Silas Wright, who was driven out of Wilmington by a violent mob. Many mayors lead city council in other meetings. A gavel is often used by a mayor to call a meeting to order. However, no record exists of what kind of gavel, if any, the Wilmington mayor used around this period. Note that none of these possibilities are conclusive. 
Therefore, we can explore some other options. Another possible explanation is that the gavel was not used in any official governmental or civic capacity, but rather for Waddell's personal use. Waddell could have used the gavel to punctuate his fiery speeches or had gravitas to his home. In these cases, Waddell would have been using the symbolic might of the gavel to project power and authority, absent of any outside validation. Ever since Waddell lost his congressional seat in 1879, he craved to be reinstated to a position of power. What did he do wrong to lose his congressional seat? Well, Waddell lost his seat for a number of reasons. One was the negative perception of his character. Yeah, that's fair. During his last congressional term, Waddell was criticized in the Washington Post for welshing on a gambling debt, and in general being a drunkard who associated with women of ill repute. While these allegations were damaging to Waddell's reputation, on their own, they would have quickly been swept up in the stream of D.C. gossip, if the congressman had not responded. However, Waddell was not one to take criticism sitting down. On May 1st, 1876, Waddell organized a group of his friends to ambush the editor who had written about his alleged wrongdoings. While the editor was distracted, Waddell attacked him. Waddell was only fined $10 for this assault due to his connections and privileges. However, his reputation took a much larger hit. Waddell was dragged in the papers as a scoundrel, an attempted murderer, a coward, and a liar. When all was said and done, Waddell had established a reputation as the kind of man who is liable to attack you from behind. Another reason Waddell lost was the successful campaigning of his adversary, Daniel Russell, who was able to win votes from both poor white and black North Carolinians. This aspect of his defeat surely solidified his hatred of both black suffrage and fusionist politics. The loss of Waddell's congressional seat was a devastating hit to his pride. After this loss, he was constantly searching for political relevance and power. Waddell's naked ambition and clear willingness to betray political enemies and allies alike caused him to be disliked by many, if not most, of Wilmington's most prominent figures. Waddell was considered a has-been by prominent Democrats like George Roundtree and Hugh McRae. His imperious and superior personality was also off-putting to many. However, Waddell did not like the general dislike of him by those in power to dissuade him from his goals. He never stopped looking for ways to seize power until he finally found an opening in the lead-up to the 1898 coup. Because of this ambition, Waddell may have used the gavel to decorate his home during his time as a lawyer, or to punctuate his arguments made during his speeches. Waddell was willing to use the trappings of status to gain power, even if he had never owned the status the symbols represented. This willingness can be seen in Waddell's seeming insistence that people, including his wife's, refer to him as Colonel, despite the fact that he had not ever held the rank. Ultimately, despite the fact that we do not know the exact origin of Waddell's gavel, exploring each possibility can show us different aspects of Alfred Waddell and his interactions with Wilmington's history. Waddell's gavel shows us that white, elite Wilmingtonians held the governmental and social power and fight, felt entitled to keep the power away from poor or black Wilmingtonians. The fact that the gavel was donated by Waddell or one of Waddell's descendants shows that him and his family viewed the power symbolized by the gavel as historically and personally significant. The inherited power that Waddell's gavel represents was precisely what Waddell was trying to defend 
while he played a key role in 1898's Deadly Coup. This power was not limited to Adele and was experienced by all of the other leading participants in the coup of 1898. Exploring these possibilities has helped us understand Waddell's privileged backgrounds, his institutional significance, and his ambition for power. These aspects of Alfred Waddell showed us how and why Waddell was able to foment and use the coup of 1898 for his own gain, and ultimately become Wilmington's mayor for eight years. Since the gavel is a symbol for justice and the rule of law, there was a deep irony in Waddell's possession of the object considering his participation in a coup that overthrew the legally elected Wilmington government. To learn more about the topics discussed in this podcast, feel free to peruse the sources in the notes. Some sources I would especially like to highlight are... David Zucchino's Wilmington's Lie, The Murderous Coup of 1898 and the Rise of White Supremacy. This is a great source to learn more about the 1898 coup in general and Waddell personally. Stephen O'Neill's of Gavels and Maces in the Modern Courts is a good quick read about gavels and other symbolic objects used in America's criminal and civil courts. And Meg Mulroney's Race, Place, and Memory, Deep Collins in Wilmington, North Carolina, is a much more in-depth exploration of some of the ideals that I discussed about how power works and has worked in Wilmington. If you want to see Waddell's gavel, you can view it on the North Carolina History website in the Collections Archive. Well, thank you, Dallas, for co-hosting this podcast with me. Yes, I was happy to be here today. And thank you, listeners, for enjoying the podcast. Mm-hmm.